All right, that was Orville Peck, who's performing at the Knitting Factory on August 22nd. And you are listening to The Big Tent on Radio Boise, KRBX 89.9 FM, Caldwell, Boise. I'm Jackie Kettler, here with my co-host Luke Fowler, both of us from the School of Public Service at Boise State. And we have some big news. Do you want to share, Luke? Yeah, um, so exciting stuff. Uh, starting next week, we will be in a new time slot. Uh, still on Thursdays, but we will be starting at 3.30 rather than 4. I'm directly following Vital Idaho. Um, so for all of our loyal listeners out there, set your alarms. We're going to be on the show 30 minutes early. Um, but we'll see you 30 minutes. We'll be here every week. So you won't you won't be missing us. We'll just be a little early, right? And one benefit's going to be a full hour of local public affairs programming. So I think it'll be great. Join us from 3 p.m. to 4 p.m. Um, Mountain Time. Well, today we have a special guest with us, Nicole Lang from the School of Social Work at Boise State University. So thank you for joining us, Nicole. Thank you for having me. And so one of your roles um, as, you know, a professor and director of field education at the School of Social Work. Um, So maybe explain for our listeners a little bit about um, what social work is. Sure. Um, So social work is a helping profession. Um, We really like to focus on the person in their environment and kind of across all systems. So we might consider the family system. We might consider um, how somebody navigates through their community, what groups they're part of. Um, We like to consider ourselves agents of change. We have a strong emphasis on social justice. Um, But I do want to emphasize that we we certainly want to help people, but we want to provide them with the tools to to help themselves. And they're, they're the experts of their own lived existence, their own lives, and so we hope that um, they can kind of lead that path and we'll just assist them along. That's really interesting, and it seems like, you know, it's not a really important area to be training people to work in, and as your your role as Assistant Director of Field Education, you know, what are you, what is field education in social work? Sure, it's the signature pedagogy of social work, so it's really where students are putting what they're learning in the classroom, um, their theories and such, um, into practice, in, in a practice setting, so they're going out to different organizations, and they're learning the real world of social work and what that looks like in that setting which is so important yeah and again i think one of the the important things to emphasize with social work right is it's very much an applied field i mean it's about changing the world around us um and i think that's really an important thing that we do at the university in a lot of ways and coming from a program where we really harp on that and are teaching our students to go out there and, and affect positive change in their communities um it's great to see programs like this that are really oriented into improving communities and not just talking about things um, like we like to do in the academy sometimes. Well, yeah, I think it's easy for us to kind of stay in our building, not talk to anyone besides our students, but it's it's really great that you all are getting students out and helping them really be prepared for life after college. Yeah, absolutely. The The field setting is just where they're practicing those skills and they're getting support um, in a, a really important way um, by other social workers who've been in the field for quite some time, generally speaking. Um, yeah, and it's just where they're practicing their skills. That's fantastic. Yeah, and so you work in a particularly interesting field as far as that goes, right, with veterinarian social work? 
I'm starting to a yeah. little bit. So, yeah. But that's a brand new field for, for both you and social work in general, right? So could you tell us what that is? Sure. So veterinary social work has been around for since about 2002. The, um, the term was coined by Dr. Elizabeth Strand out of the University of Tennessee, Knoxville. And what veterinary social work is, is our tagline is kind of um, attending to the human needs in a veterinary setting. Um, and we have four primary areas of focus. And that is um, the link between human and animal violence. Um, we also work with um, folks around grief and loss, pet loss, grief and bereavement. Um, we also work with veterinary professionals around um, conflict management and compassion fatigue, and then also animal-assisted interventions, so like service animals or therapy animals and such. Yeah, I can imagine how this is becoming a, a much more important thing, um, particularly as we look at millennials who, whose dogs become their children, at least, uh, you know, in their, their 20s and 30s. And I, I have, me and my wife have two dogs that are basically like our children. She refers to one of them as uh, the babiest of all babies, and he is as spoiled as you can imagine. He's also a 100-pound bloodhound, so that makes him a huge brat. Jackie, I know, has a dog that she also adores, and so you can imagine that this kind of these issues become are becoming a lot more personal for people as they kind of bond with their their pets and I mean essentially becoming their first children right and sometimes in some cases yeah absolutely um 38 percent of all households have pets in them um a large portion of those folks um believe that their their pets are part of their family so yeah there's there's a huge bond and and like you talked about that's often for um younger people starting out that that's your, those are your first kids well, and so I think often one thing I've noticed is that when people are grieving over losing a pet, you know, it, it may not be treated quite the same as grief for losing, uh, you know, um, people in our lives. But I think that, you know, these are our constant companions in some some instances. And so there is a real need to take that grief seriously. Yeah, absolutely. When we we talk about that disenfranchised grief where it's not recognized maybe by the general public like it is for humans. Um, and so part of veterinary social work is, is working with folks to normalize that, that what you're experiencing is real um, and it's important. It's just as important as, as any other loss that you might be experiencing. And I think for, for folks just to hear that, that's that's kind of a big deal. Yeah, I agree, because I think people sometimes will dismiss it, and then they don't really take that grief seriously. Yeah, absolutely. And they don't know how to work through it. Um, you know, we have funeral services and, and other rituals um, for humans when they pass, but we don't necessarily have those kinds of things for, for pets. Yeah, that's, that's a really interesting point. So f for someone working in veterinary social work, how might they help um, dealing with that grief or, or informing or kind of what might be an approach to trying to help address that? Sure. Um, what I've been doing, and I've been doing a lot of that in, in my internship that I'm doing right now, we're just sitting down with folks and letting them express their feelings. And then once again, normalizing that, that yeah, this is a real thing. And it's okay if you've been crying for several days over the loss of your cat. Um, this is normal for a loss. And, and really recognizing the, the bond between that person and the animal and, and how that's played a big part of in their lives. 
That's interesting. Yeah, I think that acknowledgement could be important there. Yeah. You mentioned your internship. So so what is your internship? So it's actually, I believe we call it a keystone project, but I'm doing um, about 240 hours with um, West Vet, which is one of the emergency animal hospitals here in town. And I'm just spending a very few hours a week, but I'm there to work with clients who've had a loss or might have gotten a diagnosis that um, they weren't expecting. Um, So we kind of work through that. I'm also there to help support the veterinary professionals um, because they they deal with a lot as well. Their clients don't talk um, or their patients don't talk. So that's a huge stressor. We don't always know what's happening. And um, certainly they're amazing professionals who know what they're doing. But um, what happens in veterinary medicine is not always clear. Um, and that that just it adds additional stress for them as well. Yeah, to go back to one of the previous things, I imagine it's also extremely stressful in that social work as making, um, we'll say, end-of-life decisions with pets yes. um, becomes very difficult. Um, I, one of my, my parents' friends um, spent twenty or $30,000 in, in surgeries that basically to prolong, prolong, prolong their dog's life by about six months, and there's just kind of a lot of debate about whether or not that was good or bad. And how much, like, and so I imagine those are extremely stressful, difficult decisions for people to make, um, particularly when it comes to money and their loved one and a lot of things that are unclear at the time. Absolutely. They're, they're difficult decisions to make, and there are a lot of factors that come into play. Like, you know, can you financially do what it is you would like to do f- for your pet? Um, and maybe you can't. And so there's some guilt around that. And in, in human medicine, we don't make decisions about passing. Um, that's kind of made for us. And, and as a family member, sometimes you have to make that decision. And there's a lot of guilt that goes along with that. Um, and I, I think for the veterinary professionals on the other side, sometimes they're asked to humanely euthanize an animal that maybe could be saved. Or perhaps um, a family might not be ready to say goodbye and they've let something go longer than it could. Yeah, I imagine that's really challenging. Well, we're going to take a short break, um, but please continue for more discussion of veterinary social work. You're tuned into Radio Boise Community Radio, 89.9 FM. This is Oso Negro. We're back on the Big Tent uh, here with our, our special guest, Nicole Lang, from the School of Social Work at Boise State, talking about veterinarian social work, which is a, a really interesting, cutting-edge topic. Um, and so, Nicole, in the, the last segment, we were talking about uh, social work in the setting of dealing with you know patient or grieving around a loss of a, of a, a pet. Um, but one of the other interesting topics that, that you've told me that you, you work with or is an issue here is when it comes to um, so, uh, receiving person social services like homelessness or dealing with homelessness and how pets kind of fit into that and I was wondering if you could just kind of talk about that a little bit more for our audience yeah and and there's a couple things you think about homelessness and maybe also um, domestic violence situations so in in terms of homelessness um, generally speaking shelters across the country don't have um, resources to to house a pet if somebody is homeless and so folks might have resources available to them but because they can't bring their animal along they they choose to stay on the street or where wherever it is that they're staying um and so when it, when i think about you know what what we can do as agents of change we need to really think about how can we work as communities to be able to pr- 
provide adequate shelter to the pets while we're providing adequate shelter to to the humans and we just we need to do a better job of that all the way around yeah no that's really interesting i was reading an article i believe it was in the idaho press this weekend and it talked about uh, the number of uh, homeless people in boise that are now living in cars um and really part of it was that with the growth in the treasure valley and the way the housing market is and then our limited homelessness services really across the the treasure valley um a lot of people don't have room in shelters um but you know the other thing it it talked about is that two of the the predictors of living in cars was one if you're married you have kids um typically families can't stay together in shelters but the other one was pets um and that was an interview uh that was kind of sad with an older gentleman who basically said that he couldn't seek survey like he was having problems finding a place to live and he was having problems getting to homeless shelters because he wouldn't give up his dog um, and so it was basically him living in a car every night because he wanted to stay with his dog. Yeah, yeah, and I, th- that is that is a real thing for people. Um, and I, I think the other thing is that oftentimes, because this is your family member, even though they have four legs, um, your resources will go to that family member and maybe not for the things you need, uh, food, medical care, whatever that is. So there, it, it all kind of plays together, and we, we need to be thinking as social workers, as human beings, really, about how that whole system and and how we can um, kind of think, bring things together for people so they don't have to pick and choose. For sure. I think that that's important that when we are, you know, interacting with people that we can recognize, right? Like, well, maybe this is what's going on. Maybe that there's a pet that needs needs fed or, or what what's holding them back from from going to the shelter. Yeah. So you also mentioned um, issues like domestic violence as being here. Can you maybe talk and expand on that a little bit for us? Sure. Um, Similarly, that maybe um, if there's a pet in the home and there's domestic violence going on, um, the abuser might use that pet um, to to threaten the other person. Like, if you leave, I'm going to hurt this dog. Or if a, a person might really want to leave and go to a shelter, but because there's no resources for their animal, they choose to stay because they're afraid it might get hurt as well. Um, again, it, it gets really complicated, but that, that certainly plays a factor in, in folks being able to seek out help. No, again, uh, this is really interesting, and I can see where this becomes a bigger issue. Again, as we talked about in the last segment, how pets are more importantly to our family life, particularly for young millennials. Um, and as we're running into these situations, it just adds this complicating factor um, to it all. I mean, how do you you know flee a home from an abuser when you can't take your dog with you? Um, how do you deal with some of these grieving and loss issues? How do you find a places to live? I could say personally, when I moved to the Treasure Valley, I had a really hard pl- time finding a place to live because I have two big dogs. Um, and so basically, the first house that I came across that I those could both come with me I was like here's my money like please give me this house um and so I was kind of lucky in the fact that I found a place but I also know people that are run up against the situation like do I give up my dog or do I not have a place to live like what and those are really really challenging um um, decisions to make right because a lot of like even apartment complexes have weight limits or, or number you know limits on number of pets and so then yeah that can kind of feed into the challenges here as well with housing yeah, no, it's interesting. And so uh, my dad uh, always kind of ribs me or kind of gives me hell about um, how much the, like the dog well-being comes into some of the decisions that me and my wife make about what our living situations and some of the things that we're doing, um, particularly like when it comes around travel. Like, oh, I don't want to go home for two weeks because I don't want to leave the dogs and have a dog sitter come. Like, I don't want to do that to them. And so he's just like, well, they're just dogs. And I'm like, no, they're, you know, I've had them for 10 years. I've had them since I was grad school. Like, they're they're my little buddies. Like, I don't want to do that to them. Um, and so that's just always kind of a, a conflict. But it goes 
goes back to that kind of disenfranchised uh, meant when it comes to pets versus if they were actually children that would probably be a different attitude like i'd nobody would encourage me to leave my kids for two weeks right and just have somebody stop by once or twice a day <laughs> Yeah, I think that might be, you know, a little more concern from in general. Yeah, so um, I think they frown upon things like that. <laughs> uh, Nicole, you'd also mentioned that veterinarians kind of they face a lot of stress, and um, potentially this could be mental, physical, a variety of elements for working with animals. Um, so, do you want to talk a little bit about how social veterinarian social work might be able to help more with veterinarians or maybe farmers or other or other people that work with animals regularly? Sure. Um, in terms of veterinarians, um, yeah, their their jobs are intense. They're complicated. Um, veterinarians see death five times more than um, human medical professionals, so that takes a toll. And you know, it, the fact of the matter is that happens because their their patients lifespans are just shorter in general, um, which is really unfortunate. Um, they veterinarians also have, I, I believe, that they are. The, um, they have the second highest rate of suicide among um, medical professionals, um, higher than dentists even at this point. Um, and a lot of that has to do with um, some of that moral distress of maybe having to put animals down when they don't want to or not understanding um, what's happening with the case because once again, the, the animal can't tell them. Um, dealing with the fact that um, they're running a business uh, so there's that piece of it, and we don't necessarily have um, health care for animals like we do for people, although we need to do better for health care for people as well. Um, so all of these factors come into play, and that's just, it's a high level of stress for veterinarians. And um, where social workers can help in this at, is that um, they can really attend to the other humans in the setting, maybe even debrief with the veterinarians, that kind of thing. But if we're helping with the people who are coming in with their pets, then that frees up the veterinarians to really just practice medicine and not have to deal with all of the other things that come along with it. Um, but veterinary social workers also will work with veterinarians and other um, veterinary professionals to, to like debrief, just check in, see what they're doing for their own wellness, um, just kind of keep that in the forefront of their mind. Um, and that is um, to the credit of veterinary schools across the country. That is something they're focusing on with their students, which is great. That is good. I mean, you think about in like a hospital, you have so many different people serving different roles, but veterinarians are doing a lot of those roles by themselves. And so, yeah, I can see how that would put a lot of stress and kind of, um, you know, pressure, but also just challenging to, to deal with all that. Yeah, absolutely. So, uh, Nicole, uh, to wrap up the segment, um, if somebody wants to learn more about veterinary social work, either to get involved in the profession or thinks they need a social worker, is that like, where can they get for more information? Um, they can certainly contact me if they would like. Um, they can also, the University of Tennessee Knoxville has an amazing program with a fabulous website with all kinds of resources um, that they can get more information about too. All right. And what about any state efforts that might be going to try to help or local efforts to help work on some of these issues? Sure. Um, well, one thing that comes to mind is the, so July 1st, um, the new spay and neuter license plate came out. So um, anybody who purchases that license plate, the funds will um, go into a pot that's actually going to be managed by the Humane Society, but different nonprofit groups can apply for those funds to um, spay and neuter animals um, for, for low cost, so for, for folks who, who are of low income. So there's that. 
fantastic. Funding. And I'm sure there's some nonprofits that are also maybe trying to help with, with things. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, they're, 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 I think folks are really trying to come together to work with each other um, because certainly if we're helping the animals through some of those nonprofits, we're, we're certainly helping the people as Great. well. Great. Well, that we're, we're glad to hear some of these efforts happening. It sounds like an important area for more work. Well, we're going to take a break here on the Big Tent on Radio Boise. Um, we'll be back in a minute. From songs that don't sound like songs to pop compositions punching out of the ether. This is the whole enchilada. KRBX 89.9 at 93.5 FM. So we're back on uh, the Big Ten on Radio Boise and talking uh, again to Nicole Lang from the School of Social Work at, at Boise State. And we uh, were talking about the, the field of veterinary social work. Um, but somewhat somewhat related to dogs is uh, the uh, local craft beer scene here in Boise. There's a, there's a segue in there somewhere. And there's a transition. Um, so that's one <laughs> well, of We're what, still perfecting <laughs> our transitions. Listen, I need Jen Snyder here because she's way better at this than I am. I just awkwardly start talking about things, but whatever. <laughs> um, so you do have an interest in the, the local craft beer scene, and you're involved with the craft beer festival in town, too. So would you tell us a little bit more about that? Because those are things that I, I love is beer and dogs. So that goes together well. They're important things. Um, yes, in a previous life, um, I developed uh, what was probably like my dream thing. Um, so, and I'm, I'm allowed to still help with it every fall, which is great. So um, I run a dog-friendly craft beer festival called Bark and Brew, which um, supports employment opportunities for people with disabilities. Um, so it's just a lot of really good beer, really good music, and um, dogs are encouraged to bring their people to it. Yeah. <laughs> I like that. Do you have dog-friendly beer there, or is it just people beer? Just people beer. All right, and so when is the fest? Uh, it is September 28th in the parking lot of Highlands Hollow. Awesome, and so we'll have to look forward to that. So uh, talking about local craft beer, um, what, what's your tell us more about what, what, what's your favorite local craft beer um, around here. That's a really great great question. Um, so I've totally changed my tune. I used to be a solely dark beer person, mm-hmm. and over the summer I discovered sours, um, which you know has been a trend for a while. And I really like the stuff that Barbarian is putting out, um, and Payette as well too. Yeah, my husband's favorite beer is sour beers, and so he's been really happy to see more sour beers being brewed here locally. Right. Jackie, what's your favorite? What's my favorite? Uh, it's hard, right? Like, I think it can vary, too, on, like, what type of beer you really enjoy. Um, so Luke and I both, I think, really like Hefeweizens, which not a lot of breweries mm-hmm. locally do, but Western Collective has had recently um, Oh, Hefeweizen. That's that's quite California good. California Reject. Yeah, <laughs> yeah actually, I was going to say that's my, my favorite right now is because I like wheat beers and, and Hefeweizens. Though, uh, I will say, so my father-in-law's been in town lately, and we take him uh, to these places. Like, I'll order a beer, and he looks through it and goes, don't they just have a Bud Light? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, well, and I think you know, and I think some of the breweries I feel like Payette and a few others also have some light beers like Kolsch's or Lagers or other things that they're trying to also appeal to you know, people who would prefer some of those those types of beers. So, uh, somewhat related to the local craft beer scene, you also like local food trucks, correct? I do. All right, so do you have a favorite food truck right now? Yes. Which um, one? Grid Waffles. 
Ooh, I've not. Oh, I think I have had those because they're at uh, Western Collective one day, right? Uh, so, what what kind of food did they serve? Can you describe that to us? Waffles. They put mashed <laughs> potatoes waffles. on waffles. <laughs> um, yeah, it's amazing. You can also get um, like apples and bacon and brie on a waffle, or pretzels and caramel. Oh, that sounds pretty amazing. Um, they're fabulous. Uh, I was a big fan of, or I guess there still are food drivers. It was Mad Mac. Um, I know they have mm. a physical re- uh, restaurant now, but I'm a big fan of that. Uh, and kind of to combine these two train of thoughts with the local breweries and the tr- food trucks. One thing I really like about the the craft beer scene around here is when they have the food trucks come to them, and so you get a variety of different food every time you go. So I'm yeah, a fan I, of that. I think that's a really nice kind of, you know, where you get to see local collaborations um, between breweries and, and food trucks or carts or other things, and you kind of get to see that collaboration and working together, which I think is great. It's also, I mean, it's helped develop the food truck scene here in Boise, I think. Yeah, so uh, Nicole, if you have any other recommendations for our listeners on either craft beer or (laughs) food trucks... I don't necessarily. I would just say go out and support them because this this is an important thing to know about the craft brew scene in Boise. They are incredibly supportive of our community. They are regularly doing things for nonprofits, giving a portion of their proceeds to nonprofits. Um, food trucks do that as well. There's lots of food truck rallies that support different um, different community initiatives. So whichever one you choose go out and support them because they're really great community partners to a lot of other groups yeah no I, I find that to be a very interesting trend around a lot of the local craft breweries around here is the sense of community that comes along with them and the engagement the amount of outreach events they do i mean even when you kind of go you make friends with random people that are there and so it just seems like a very friendly open opening place and so that ends up being uh i mean maybe replacing some of our antiquated social institutions um that might have been more popular 50 60 years ago and now it's just the craft breweries instead of going to the bowling alleys we're going to the local breweries yeah exactly yeah (laughs) Well, I also think there's some interesting collaboration that happens within the community as well, and a lot of support for like each other, even though they're competing with one another, which is kind of always interesting to watch. Yeah. So uh, you've also told us, because you filled out a nice questionnaire for us, that you have a secret dream of running a local uh, food truck, right? I do. I totally want to have a food truck that only serves breakfast food. All right. I love breakfast food, so I'm on board with this. So what kind of breakfast food are you going to serve? I love to bake, so I would make really excellent pastries, and then I think you could just have a whole bunch of breakfast casseroles that are easy and sausages. Yeah, I love one thing I do love about Boise. Um, and so coming from the South, Waffle Houses were everywhere, but Waffle Houses had put a local a lot of the local diners out. So you have all these like local diners like Goldies and Moons, and I'm a huge fan of Elmer's and Bob's Sunrise Cafe, which my wife hates. Um, so I love going to all these places, but I just loved like the big greasy food breakfast food and just eat it then like that's the only thing i can eat the rest of the day because i feel sick and i don't want to get off the couch that's a good saturday (laughs) especially when we combine that with craft beer right (laughs) yeah we all sound like we're very healthy individuals right (laughs) yeah yeah. i'll get healthy one day (laughs) yeah well i mean i think you know i think these are some areas that boise's really thriving in lately and which makes it very helps the livability right like i think especially for a lot of people like us in our kind of 20s 30s 40s like these are areas like luke mentioned that are important to have to kind of help bring community help the the community as nicole mentioned well, you know, there's a lot of, I mean, I guess research out there about millennials and essentially their their economic values changing. They're 
interested in spending less on housing and more on things like experiences. So they're much more willing to go spend money to hang out with their friends somewhere or, you know, go eat at the new cool place rather than they are on other things and buying new gadgets. Um, so I think this is definitely one of those things that helps develop, you know, the appeal of hanging out in Boise and living here. Well, thank you so much for joining us, Nicole. I think learning more about veterinary social work is really interesting, and we definitely hope to see it continue to thrive um, as it moves forward. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. Uh, and just a reminder uh, as we close out the show that next week we will be at 3.30, um, immediately following Vital Idaho, um, instead of rather than our regular time at 4, and so that's going to be a permanent change for us. We're really excited about having the solid hour of public affairs Thursday here on uh, Radio Boise.